0: This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast.
1: A year or so ago, if you owned a home in Hamilton or Burlington and you were thinking of selling that home, you were golden. There was no guarantee. There's never a guarantee, but you could be pretty confident, reasonably sure, that two things were going to happen. One, you were going to make a good amount of money on your home, you were going to get a good price for it. And number two, it would sell quickly. Houses here were flying and they were flying with big, big prices. We've had more than one show, uh, more than one agent on this show over the over the years who was even telling us that we have been seeing in Hamilton at least we had been seeing Toronto style bidding wars which was an entirely new thing for the Hamilton area but people putting a price on a home and getting more than asking price which as I say is just not something we'd seen in the past here. Well, let's flash forward for a second to today. According to the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington, Residential sales in this market in March fell by 37.8% from last March, from a year ago. That follows a February to February drop of 40%. And the average price of the homes that sold in that time fell by 15.5%. This leads to an obvious question. Is this a blip that we are seeing or is this a sign of something more serious? If you want to use the word ominous, if you're a homeowner, is it that? Well, Hilliard Macbeth is a financial advisor. He is also the author of the book, When the Bubble Bursts, Surviving the Canadian Real Estate Crash. He joins me now. Sir, thanks for doing this this evening.
2: Nice to be on your show.
1: I am. When I'm judging by the title of your book, uh, I'm guessing you are not shocked this is happening, both here and around the country. This is something you've been expecting would be happening.
2: Yes, I I, uh, started to notice this about five years ago, and um, the first edition of the book came out three years ago, so I've definitely been on the side of expecting a correction or a crash um, for a while now. So somebody said, eventually you'll be right, (laughs) (laughs) Hilliard. Okay, well, why?
1: What were the the signs or what were the markers that were telling you that something was going to happen? I, I mean, is it just purely the high prices?
2: Well, it was it, you know it started actually. Um, if we got a little bit of time, it started actually when I was. So my main job is ha- handling um, investments for people. People hire me to manage their investments for them, and uh, I'm in my 40th year now. So I've got quite a long um, comparison of different periods going over over the decades. And about 10 years ago, I started noticing my clients, and so all, uh, and also another thing is my clients generally tend to be older. So they. Um, they, they they sort of, I, when they start to change their behavior or start to do things differently, you notice it, right? And So I noticed that they were starting to help their kids buy houses and of course they've got quite a bit of money, most of them, and so they come to me and say, oh I need 100000 because my kids have to buy a house and and I say, well, yeah, but your kids are only like 22 years old, but why do they have to buy? Well, if they don't get in now they'll never get in, you know, the prices are rising and they're going to keep, so I you know, the first couple of times I tried to talk them out of it, but it's hard to talk them out of it. So I just kind of gave up, but I got curious to say, what is going on? So I started to write research. And of course, as you said, the prices were extremely high in relation to the incomes. Like, you know, people, people were buying houses. They, they there was no, no uh, precedent for people with that amount of income being able to buy a house that was so expensive. And it, it, it required a combination of, what well, has been now called the Bank of Mom and Dad, helping, plus the the lenders, usually the Canadian commercial banks, uh, being much more generous in terms of the amount of um, well, generous I shouldn't use that word, much more aggressive, let's say, in the amount of money of debt that they're willing. They call it credit, but when you go after a few years and you've been paying it down, and yes. it is not shrinking, it actually the proper term is debt, but credit sounds so much sexier, so they use credit. <laughs> So, uh, you know, recently I had a uh, young couple that were offered a million dollars, and their combined income was 150000 So that's seven times. So, you know, 40 years ago when I started, the maximum, and the, and you really had to be, your job has to be solid, and they have to really, you know, like everything about you, they might be willing to go to three times. And now they're, and, you know, up until recently, they were going to seven times. So So that's what got me going on it. And in Edmonton, and, I'm based in Edmonton and Calgary. I know really well. I've got lots of clients in Vancouver and stuff. So I've different parts of the country. And then as a result of the book, I've talked to people all across the country. So it's not the same everywhere in the country. Like, for instance, Toronto and Hamilton were really hot up until about a year ago. And Edmonton and Calgary have long since uh, cooled off. Like, the, the Edmonton and Calgary markets have been in decline for, for years now. Um, yeah, The most recent... Was the oil price drop this year in 2015? Yep. But Edmonton and Calgary actually were were kind of soft even before that, and so so you're living in at the epicenter of this thing, and and, and the most outrageous gains were really the last couple of years in in uh, Toronto and Hamilton and Vancouver and Victoria. So those, basically those four places, as far as I can tell, and it looks like. Toronto peaked about a year ago, April of 2017, and it looks like for single-family homes, because it's different between condos and single-family homes. Looks like in Vancouver, in the in the single-family home market, which is very expensive there, by the way, um, it peaked in 2016. So, so you're seeing it, and it doesn't surprise me. What the main thing that surprised me really on it was how much longer Toronto in Vancouver kept going up before hmm. this downturn
0: started you're listening to the scott radley show weeknights from six to eight only on 900 chml
1: chatting with hilliard Macbeth, author of when they bubble bursts surviving the canadian real estate crash and just before the commercial hilliard was mentioning that banks are willing to give exorbitantly higher mortgages than income coming in for people younger people couples whomever And Hilliard, what really, from the bank's perspective, I can see the logic in this. They're saying, listen, if you want to pay interest only on your mortgage ad infinitum and never get the principal paid off, that's just money pouring in for us. That's perfect. For the people doing it, I'm thinking they're saying, many of them would be saying, yeah, I know we're probably not going to be able to pay this thing off, but this is going to keep going up in value. And when it comes time to sell, we'll make our money that way. And yet now that the market has gone completely cold and probably many of these people are left holding a home that is worth less than what they paid or less what their mortgage is and that they're basically unsellable homes, that to me seems like exactly what you're talking about when you say the bubble bursting.
2: Exactly. You know, I I was, I was, got into this thing. I, was, I You know, I learned so much and um, I tried to talk to people about, so just to give you an idea, if you borrow $800,000 for a million dollar home, and you amortize it over 25 years, and op- the average interest rate turns out to be 6.5%. Now, I know the rate's lower than that now, but rates are rising. They're rising fairly rapidly in the U.S., so average over... Anyway, at 6.5%, it's double. So basically, you're paying 800000 back for the principal. You pay another 800000 for the interest over 25 years. And at current rates, which are lower, say you average 4, 45 uh, if you amortize it over 30 years, it's double again. And nobody, when people go to sign those forms at the at, at the lender, nobody explains that to them that they're going to end up paying double. And so then I tried to talk to people about that, and they, and and I sort of hit a wall. And then just exactly what you just said, I realized they didn't ever expect to pay that money back. They, they nobody really thinks they're going to pay back close to a million dollars. You're going to
1: make money because real estate always gonna,
2: goes up. Their real estate always goes up, and they're going to sell that home. Now, they, I don't think they have thought it through in terms of where they're going to live. When they sell <laughs> sure. Home for and also, of course, they didn't think it through in terms of what if it goes down from a million down to to uh, say seven hundred thousand, which is the minimum kind of correction I sp- expect. So now, the whole down payment of two hundred thousand is lost on that home. The you know the money they got from mom and dad is gone, and now they're a hundred thousand underwater on their mortgage, and that's happening now in suburbs of Toronto. So in in Markham and some of those places now, people have actually lost more than 20% on their homes. And I, and I heard on the intro that in Hamilton it's down 15%. It, it's down,
1: yeah, it's down a lot. Now, it, do you believe that this is a blip? Because we keep hearing that from the agents. And, of course, I mean, look, agents have their job they have to do, and they want to convince people that it, you, know, you should buy. And I'm not saying they're not telling you the truth, but they are optimists, I think, by nature. Is this a blip or is this something that you think is going to go on for longer or this is the correction and this is where it's going to be now for a while?
2: This is I think I think you know I, we won't know for a couple of years actually but I think this is the start of the correction and if it gets to be more than 30% it, it it I think the terminology is crash right so so as we're so far it's a correction but it only has to go another 15% and and it could be called a crash and and because what happens is you know the backers back away, and I know I noticed the, the intro said about the volume, and that's happening all over Canada, in Edmonton, Calgary, Vancouver, Toronto, everywhere. The volume is, is dropped precipitously, right? So, and that's because the sellers are, are reluctant to drop their prices to the level that that um, it would take to get the sale. Well,
1: they've grown used to those much nicer, higher prices.
2: And I you know I talk and I talk about it and and I call it the, the term I use I got from economics is called the anchor price. And the anchor price isn't necessarily the price you paid. Some of these people that are refusing to sell because prices have dropped fifteen percent, actually bought much lower. Mm-hmm. but but their anchor price is the price that that neighbor got for that exactly home a year ago or two years ago, and and until they become convinced that those days are gone forever there's going to be uh, kind of like a standoff. There's going to be the the buyers are way down here. The sellers are still way up there. And so in the past, now it's been so long since this happened, but in the past it would be the 80s, the 1980s, and I was already working then. So um, what happened was there was a long period uh, of like really very little volume. And then the lenders stepped in and forced the sales. So when you start seeing – Foreclosures and power of sale, and people declaring bankruptcy because they realize there's just no way they're going to be able to. Uh, because unfortunately, in Ontario and most of Canada, the the lender can pursue you if they if they seize the home in a foreclosure. And um, in that example we used, where the two hundred thousand dollar payment is gone, and now it's a hundred thousand underwater on the mortgage, uh, they can they can come after the. Um, the homeowner, the former homeowner, I guess, for the uh, deficit of a hundred thousand, and, and it, it gets even worse because uh, the the banks never get a good price when they for, when they foreclose on a house and they sell. Uh, at least in the U.S., the most recent example we had was uh, nine years ago in the U.S. when this happened, and they always get the worst price because as soon as people see bank bank uh, foreclosure, they they start they start digging lower, right? Like, well the
1: momentum builds, right? Everyone starts believing yeah. I'm gonna be able to get a house for cheaper, so just hang in there, wait a while.
2: Now what happened in the US what happened in the US was they actually the banks foreclosed them but they didn't put them on the market. And then the hedge funds came along and bought you know, thousands and thousands of homes uh, at really cheap prices from the banks. And of course the people were forced out of their homes and then they had to go around and find rentals. And they tried in the US to bring in a program where the person that had lost the, basically lost the home, if their credit was still good, they could actually stay in the home as renters and then somehow maybe work their way back in to be owners again. And, and That's, you know, that's okay. a tough
1: thats a tough way to do it. Now, Hilliard, sadly, I'm out of time, unfortunately. Yeah. I really appreciate the time today. Thanks so much sure. for this. Really great. The book is called sure. When the Bubble Bursts, Surviving the Canadian Real Estate Crash by Hilliard Macbeth. Hilliard, thanks so much.
2: Thank you.
1: Uh, if you are a homeowner and you were looking to downsize, to sell, to move somewhere... tough that the days of the big 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 prices for now anyway seem to be gone if you're a buyer looking to get into the market you may be very very pleased with the way things are going right now it's good news bad news depending on which side of the escalator you're on
0: you're listening to the scott radley show weeknights from six to eight only on 900 chml
1: read a story in the guardian the british newspaper the guardian the other day online in it The writer, who is an average by all accounts, an average guy, just like you and me, started researching exactly what about him was out there on the internet. What did the internet as a thing, what did it know about him? Well, let me tell you what he found out was rather startling. Let me go through some of the examples of what he discovered is available about himself on the internet. Google knew everywhere he had been for the past 12 months it knew how long it had taken him from get to taken him to get from one place to another every trip it knew every website he'd searched ever even the ones he'd specifically deleted from his history It knew every app he'd used, who he'd communicated with on Facebook, on email, on all other social media platforms. It had a record of every YouTube video he's ever watched, his bookmarks, his contacts, his photos, all the businesses he's ever bought anything from, his credit card accounts, including how much he paid for those things, his calendar, his music, shall I go on? It knew everything about him. We don't even think about this. And this, again, nothing special about this guy. He's not the president. He's not the prime minister. He's just a guy. No specifically interesting life. It's just everything that he's done is out there. And you know what? It means that the same thing is probably true for us, for you, for me, for Ben, for everybody. What we've done, our lives, they are online. And maybe I am paranoid but that kind of sounds creepy to me and more than a little disconcerting. And then I got thinking, what could they actually do? And I don't know who they even is, but what could they do with this information that is out there? Alan Mendelson is a lawyer specializing in Internet law. He's one of our favorite guests to have on the show. Alan, thanks for doing this today.
3: Scott, you're one of my favorite interviewers, so <laughs> we're even.
1: I don't know if you just heard all that intro, but that is for just one guy, one average guy, that is a massive amount of what people probably thought was personal information that is out there. If someone knows how to find it, I don't know about anyone else's. I'm kind of shocked about how much is actually available.
3: Uh, the I would say the layperson like yourself would be shocked. The experts... Uh, I'll put myself in that category, are not shocked. Uh, It's not surprising, given that Google's and Facebook's entire business models are based on collecting as much information about you as possible and using it to hopefully just serve you some targeted advertisements But as we may have seen with the Facebook case, well, maybe they're using it for other purposes as well. So, you know, this is it's kind of shocking the amount that they keep. um, But at the same time, I'm not particularly surprised.
1: Okay, and again, let's talk about the layperson because that's probably most of us. And I think that everybody who's ever bought something online probably figures there's a record of that and probably to some degree we figure other stuff that we do online there's a record of that. But when you start getting into we don't really think that our phones have these tracking devices on them that show everywhere we've been and and how fast we went there and so many minor I think people are would be probably are going to say, wait how do I turn that thing off on my phone now I don't want someone knowing everywhere I've gone
3: uh, sure and you know and the, and the problem is is that Google is ubiquitous in several ways so if you're using an Android phone and if you're using the Google Chrome browser and by definition if you're using those things you have a Google account those two things are going to collect absolutely everything about you by default. Now, there are ways to sort of turn those things off and to limit the amount of data that's collected by you. But by default, you know, using those two particular environments, in Google's case, is going to, you know, uh, get everything about you. And even if you're not using an Android phone, I mean, I... I have an an iPhone, but I use Google Maps on my iPhone. I'm logged into a Google account through my Google Maps. Google Maps knows where I've searched and where I've gone from my iPhone even. And if you turn
1: that off, though, on your phone, if you get paranoid and you say, I don't want them knowing, it actually doesn't allow a whole bunch of things on your phone that you would want to use to work properly. So you're kind of forced back into turning it on.
3: Of course, that's the problem. I mean, and, you know, certain apps that you have on your phone, by definition, require them to know where you are in <laughs> order for them to function properly. So if I want to know where the nearest coffee shop is to exactly, you know, if I'm on vacation in Ireland, like this gentleman was in that story you were talking about, if I'm on vacation in Ireland and I'm in the middle of Cork County and I have no idea where I am and I need a cup of coffee, well, I type in to my Google Maps, "Where's the nearest coffee?" Well, I mean, without location services, which is what what it's called, location services on your phone, that function is not going to work. So, it it is very much a catch twenty two in certain respects.
1: So, if so, Google has all this information. We know Facebook has some too. We've been hearing about Facebook a lot. Who else potentially? could could access is it just those two companies or could someone else who knows what they're doing to be able to work around a computer find out everything about me or you or whoever else
3: well it depends on the circumstances certainly i mean google and facebook being the two most ubiquitous companies with respect to your online activities they are going to by definition have the most data about you now under certain circumstances um, and, and Google is much better than this, um, than Facebook is. They may, even those two giant companies, may turn over certain information to third parties for what at the time may have been legitimate means. But that, you know, that data just sort of gets out there in the wild. And even Facebook said today and yesterday that, well, maybe third parties were just scraping information from your Facebook profile anyway without really your knowledge.
0: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML.
1: Chatting with Alan Mendelson, internet lawyer, about all this massive amount of information that the internet holds about all of us. And if you're out there thinking to yourself, well, they don't know about me... You're being a little naive, I would guess, unless you are living somehow in a cave somewhere in the hills of Afghanistan, they probably know about you, whoever, again, whoever they are, but Alan, let's leave aside. We are just talking about this information and who can do stuff with it. Leaving aside a random hacker who could figure out how to get access for whatever reason they would want to get it about me or you. The companies that have this, Google, Facebook, others, there have to be laws, I would think, around what they are allowed to do with this information, correct? There have to be some kind of laws.
3: Absolutely. There is a broad law called PEPEDA, the Personal Information Protection and Electronic Documents Act. This is a federal law that covers every private company in Canada, with some exceptions, but let's just say it covers every private can- every private company who collects information about Canadians. And what this law says is that if you're going to collect personal information about Canadians, whether it be your name, email, phone number, any financial information, and on and on and on, anything that can identify you, you can only do it under certain circumstances. One, you have to tell people upfront we're collecting this information about you. Two, you have to say, we're collecting this information about you because we need it to do X, Y, and Z. And you have to be very clear about that you're going to not transfer that information to third parties, or if you do, under what circumstances. And that if you are collecting this information, you're going to use it for the minimal amount of reasons required. So the law is very specific as to what information it can collect under what circumstances and how it, you're going to collect that information. Um, and any unfortunately any privacy lawyer like myself will tell you that the principles behind the law is great are great but the law itself is problematic because it essentially has no penalties
1: well first of all can I just stop for one sec because of
3: course I know I'm giving
1: no 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 it's it's the answer is perfect the question I have though is when you say that they have to ask all this of you maybe I've just not been paying attention when I go on to different sites but I don't remember ever checking off yes I'm fine with you collecting all this information about me so where does that actually happen Is that just an assumed thing that if I sign on with Facebook, hey, okay, fine, you can take my stuff?
3: When you signed on to Facebook, not when you signed on, but when you signed up for your account in the first place, you filled in your name, your address, and your email, and then you clicked the little box that says, I hereby agree to Facebook's terms and conditions and their privacy policy.
1: Which we never Uh, read.
3: Correct. (laughs) But if you were to read that privacy policy... It would answer those questions for you. This is the information we're collecting. This is what we're going to do with it. This is why we need it, etc. Now, when you did that, most likely you used Facebook's privacy policy, which at the time was probably pretty weak because the Americans, and Facebook being an American company, does not have that same type of privacy, personal information law like we have here in Canada.
1: So we do all this, we sign up for this, we agree to their policies where we don't or we don't pay attention as I probably didn't, obviously. How do I know if any of these companies are following the law at all? Because I'm not going to be checking every time with every company to know whether they've sold my information to a third party or done something nefarious with it. Do I just simply have to trust that they are doing this the right way and if they're not doing it the right way, eventually somebody from the government will track them down and tell us?
3: Pretty much, I mean, the you know the, the problem is, yes, you interact with so many companies on a day-to-day basis online, that you know, forgetting about the large ones, any number of small ones that you may for some reason, just enter your name and email address on a website because you want some piece of information, it, it, you know it, it's very difficult to know without reading the privacy policies what they're doing with that information. And it is only generally in cases where something truly goes wrong, whether it's the Cambridge Analytica situation with Facebook, whether it's the Equifax data breach from last fall, these major things that happen where all of a sudden everyone goes, oh my goodness, I had given my data to Equifax or Facebook or whatever, and there's a problem with it. So yes, I mean, normally we trust these companies to do the right thing but more and more people are no longer trusting these companies as these bad things tend to be happening. Well,
1: we've got one more minute here, but would it take... Do you believe that there are checks and balances at most of these companies in place that would protect us, or would it simply, as we've seen before with... um, What's his name who's living in the Ecuadorian consulate now? Um, Julian Assange. Thank you, or others. Would it just take one person with one of these companies who decides that they have a thing against Alan Mendelson and I'm going to get his information. Could one person potentially within this company for some reason, track your stuff and find it and download it and do whatever they want with it?
3: If you're a high enough person in that particular company and someone has a grudge against you, then I don't see why not. Um, you know, if you're the, the chief technology officer or whatever a particular company, you have access to all the data collected of all of your users. And no question that, you know, you could have access to it. Now, if you end up doing something nefarious to it, you will be violating certain civil or even criminal laws. So, you know, you have to think that punishment would come eventually. Um, But yes, we do place a certain amount of trust in these people. And these people who are at these companies, then maybe it's problematic.
1: We place a lot of trust, I would say, in these yep. companies, or a lot of a lot of trust, and and hopefully it never bites. I, I as I say, when I see the amount of information, though, Alan, we got to run. When I see the amount of information, boy, it um, from this guy from this one reporter, and he's just an average guy. Boy, I think what is not just for me, and there's nothing n- terrible. I don't have huge skeletons in my closet. I'm just another person. <laughs> but what it? What do they know about us? It makes me wonder. Alan Mendelson, internet lawyer from Montreal. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks so much for doing this again.
3: Pleasure as always, Scott. Have a great night.
1: Uh, That's, yeah, that is, uh, that gives me a little bit of the heebie jeebies. Just that they know everything about you. And again, it's not a question that I've got a picture of a mutilated corpse that I did or something, and, you know, nothing like that. There's nothing. But I just, who wants someone who works in some company that you've never seen before to be able to press a few buttons and know everything about you. Maybe it's just paranoia. I don't know, but it makes me, but it's real.
0: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 only on 900 CHML.
1: Hands up out there or honk your horn or do something if you have ever attended a bachelor party. Probably, right? Most of you guys, stag and doe, whatever you want to call it, have been to a bridal shower, bachelor party, whatever. But we're going to stick with the bachelor party because we're going to talk about guys and, well, sometimes, sometimes, the bachelor party goes slightly awry. Just sometimes. Maybe a little too much booze, a little too much stupidity, a little too much testosterone, a little too much adrenaline, whatever it is. Well, that's what we're going to talk about for this next segment. A bachelor party... (laughs) that unfortunately, now I'm laughing because I know the story. This is probably, in fact, this is definitely not a story that we should be laughing at, but it's so ludicrous that I I, I somehow find it kind of funny. It, it doesn't end up really funny, but there were these guys who were having a bachelor party in Zimbabwe recently. You know where Zimbabwe is. And they, they're doing a... Doing the rounds, I guess they rented, they had a driver or something, and had a limo, and they were driving from place to place, and they ended up at a microbrewery in Zimbabwe. Well, I'm guessing by this story, this was not the first stop on the tour, and they were already well slobberknockered when they arrived at this microbrewery. They had already had more than their fair share of happy drinks. They get to the microbrewery, And this was a very special microbrewery because not only did it have beer, but it had a rather unique, exotic setting. Because off the back of the microbrewery was a crocodile pond. (laughs) So you get a bunch of guys who have drank already their body weight in beer. Celebrating a night out having a bachelor party. Well, what better idea, of course, than for one of them, as he decided. What better thing to do than take off my shirt and dive into the pond out back? Now, it's unclear in this story if he asked somebody before he jumped in, hey, what's that murky water pond in the back? I would have already, just even if I didn't know there were creatures in there, diving into a pond of gross, murky, disgusting water, I'm thinking ear infection, eye infection. I don't even need to know there are large man-eating reptiles in there. I'm not going in that water. Nonetheless, he's more brave than I am, or just way more drunk than I would ever be. And he dives into the crocodile pond. Well, Ben, let me bring Ben in for a second here. Now, I don't know that you've ever been dumb enough to dive into a crocodile pond. I'll give you three guesses what happens next. One of the crocodiles got a little too close? No, not one. Three. He His splashing around in the pond when he landed apparently sent them into a feeding frenzy. <laughs> And of course, again, I don't know why I'm laughing at this except for the sheer stupidity. Uh, one of the crocodiles ripped his arm off his body. Another one had his head in its jaws. Thankfully for the sake of the guy, who's already now missing an arm, the crocodile with his head in his jaw saw the arm swimming away and decided that was more appetizing and released him. And they all went off and started fighting. He was able to escape the pond because they were all taking turns chomping on his now severed arm, uh, he's okay. He lived. He's he can only count to five now, but he is he is an object lesson. I think that if you see a crocodile pond, if you not just crocodiles, I think probably this is a lesson for all of us. If you see somewhere that has a creature that is designed by God to kill you. It's probably a good piece of advice, a good plan, a good strategy. Don't involve yourself in their life. Don't. If you see a shark tank, don't jump in. If you see lions prowling around somewhere, don't walk toward them waving meat. Don't walk toward them, period. But anyway, yes, this guy, uh, the, the, sharks, the, the, sorry, the sharks, the crocodiles went into a feeding frenzy. As I say, he, um, he suffered severe injuries. But he uh, survived, also had fractured ribs and injuries to his head, not surprisingly, since it was in another crocodile's mouth. And he was airlifted to South Africa, where he is going to survive. Again, probably, probably not going to too many more bachelor parties, I would think. Would, but it, it, would it be a little heavy-handed for me to say we should give this guy a hand? Or, like, just a I round of think, applause? Uh, yeah, I, I, it's... Uh, Boy, as I say, we try to we try to offer advice and teach some lessons occasionally. Be educational here on the Scott Radley Show. Here is your lesson for the evening. If you see a crocodile, do not throw yourself at it. Especially if you've been drinking and your decision-making may be a little impaired. His name is Mr. Miller, Victoria Falls River Brewing Company. We'll never be the same, him or the place. I wonder if they'll put up a sign finally. This is not just ear infection water. Stay out.
0: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML.
1: Phil Pritchard is a guy that you you know, you've seen him a million times, because he's the guy who carries the Stanley Cup out to center. Ice. He's got one of the best jobs in sports. His job, not all of it, he's the curator of the Hockey Hall of Fame. He's got a lot of things going on, but one of his jobs, one of the cool parts of his jobs is that he gets to be around the Stanley Cup all the time And as I bring Phil on here, who's a Burlington guy, by the way, I think he's at home today, so nice not to be on the road for a change. Phil, you can't have many bad days when you're just taking the Stanley Cup around and everyone is always happy to see you.
4: Yeah, you're right, Scott. I guess, you know what, anyone that loves their job doesn't have very many bad days at work, and I'd count in there as me.
1: But there's there's nobody that sees you coming with the Stanley Cup and says, oh, crap, there's the Stanley Cup. (laughs)
4: Well, I would hope not, but you know, I'd trade it in a second, Scott. If I could win
1: it just once. Is that? Were you a hockey player growing
4: up? Well, I'd like to say of some right, kind. I don't think my teammates <laughs> say
1: that. No. But you did play the game, even if oh, you yeah. weren't a superstar. All so right.
4: Some old timers now. Is that right?
1: Yes. Do you ever bring the cup out to one of the games? Uh, we
4: I have a couple of times actually.
1: Yeah. <laughs> they see. They must love you. You get to be on any team that you want to be on if you say, "Hey, I'll bring the cup out at least once."
4: But you know what, Uh, I'm talking about all that, whether you're five or 50 or 75, the the love for hockey and the Stanley Cup, it's the same all the time. And I think that's what makes it really special.
1: Well, and you know, it's one of the interesting things about this. And I I know you've talked about this a lot before, and I don't want to belabor an old point, but I mean, you have pointed out that it doesn't matter how old people are, they get near the Stanley Cup. And there's a lot of people that still get very, very emotional about it.
4: It is. It's, it's, it's one of those trophies. Hey, it's the greatest trophy in sport. Who's kidding? I'm biased, but, you know. But it, it is. It's got so much legacy behind it, so much tradition, so much aura. And for people, it's it's all about memories. They see the the names of the players and teams that they grew up either listening on the radio or watching on TV, and and they come to life right in front of them there. So there's, people have a lot of emotions in front of it and that. Uh, both good and bad, because not all the time your team wins. Sometimes it actually loses. (laughs) But that's what makes it great, because people always have stories, and it's great to listen to them.
1: Do you have a favorite moment with the Cup with someone, some reaction that you got from someone? I mean, I'm I'm sure there's a million, but is there one that when you talk to people that really always stands out to you that you remember?
4: Well, you're right. I mean, there are so many, and we've been very fortunate to travel to 20, I think 25 countries now, and and people always have stories, but there's one that always comes to mind. We were in uh, Lake Tahoe, Nevada, actually, of all places. Colorado Avalanche had won the Cup, and Patrick Waugh got invited down to one of those pro-am invitational golf tournaments. So there was a lot of athletes there, and on his day, he brought the Stanley Cup. So I was down there with him, and and Patrick was great. Every hole, he would would golf, then drive the golf cart back to the Cup, get photos with people go to the next hole and he did that for 18 holes but i was standing there with a cup and a lady came up to me was swimming in lake tahoe actually came over out of the water and said to me do you have a coffee cup and i said no i don't but maybe in the clubhouse and she looked at me and looked at the trophy and said isn't that a coffee urn
2: and she had no idea that
4: it was Cup. Didn't even know what it was but she went on to tell me that she goes swimming in lake tahoe every day and the water is always about 35 <laughs> Fahrenheit, about two Celsius, and it keeps her young. And she stayed around and listened to my story, met Patrick, got photos, asked her, asked him questions. I think we made a new hockey fan that day. Well, that was pretty special for me. You,
1: you either made a new hockey fan or you left some woman completely confused about why this was all going on. But that <laughs>
4: you're right. And you know what? I I never did see her get her coffee. <laughs>
1: that's true hey i want you to tell the story by the way there's a couple i want and i'm hoping you might be able to share but um f- did you go down by the way to florida recently because i know the cup went down to that to the school the team from the school where the shooting was were yeah, you with that a trip?
4: special event eh? it's uh and you know what i mean that story keeps growing the florida panthers have done so much for that school and mm-hmm. area and and Roberta luongo had a great speech on the ice and that but one of the things that we worked together with the Panthers and the league on was to take the cup down because, uh, interestingly enough, that high school won the All-State right. just a week after that terrible tragedy. So the, there was a silver lining for the school a bit. I mean, not really, but it, it got their minds away from things. And then the Panthers, uh, led by Sean Thornton, who had actually won the cup with the Bruins, knew they had a final skate. And we hid in the arena. Sean walked out on the ice with it over his head, and it was was just great. And it it brought some tears to happiness, which was great. But for the the students and the teachers and everyone down there, it's been such a hard go. So anytime anything can help out, it's always special. And for the Stanley Cup to be there that one day for those guys and that, it was was pretty unique. And, And like I said, the Panthers have done so much more for them of taking them on the team plane and, and all sorts of things. and But that's what communities are about. Uh, tragically happen tragedy happens, and everybody tries to pitch in, and that was our little way of pitching in.
1: Well, and again, to go back to the point, I mean, you're talking about a big chunk of metal, ultimately. That's what it right. really is. Yes. Yeah. And yet... In the wake of a tragedy like that, where people have been killed, and it's of course it doesn't balance the ledgers in any way, but it's amazing that you can walk into a building and somehow that piece of metal can have the impact that it does.
4: Yeah, you know what, Scott? I mean, I, I guess it's three feet high and thirty-five pounds. It, it's it's quite the silver chalice, if you want to. It call is it that. It, for but sure. It, it's got one hundred and twenty-five years of history, and it gleams when it uh, when, as you said, when it walks into an area or something. And I think that because it's round and, and it's got that hourglass look to it, no matter where you look at it, you get a shine from it. And that, that kind of attracts you to it. And I think it would look great on anyone's mantelpiece. I'd love to have it on.
1: <laughs> well, just before I get to why I really wanted to have you on today, uh, t- I wanted you to tell, if you will, one more story, because it was a couple, how long, two or three years ago, the story of what happened in Chicago. Because many people will remember... That after the Blackhawks won, and it, it was in Chicago, and I think was it not the first time they'd actually won it on home ice in Chicago in forever?
4: Uh, yeah, since uh, since the 30s. Since
1: it's, okay, and so and all of a sudden the game ends, and the Blackhawks are celebrating, and the place is going crazy, and then all of a sudden the, everyone notices they're kind of stalling. Where's the cup? Where's the cup? They're not bringing it out yet. What's going on? Tell the story of why there was a stall going on that day. <laughs>
4: Well, you know what? It, it's amazing, and, and Mother Nature had a lot to do with it. And I'm hoping now Mother Nature might be a hockey fan. <laughs> but that day in the uh, Chicago and Illinois area off Lake Michigan, there was a tornado, and right before the game happened started, uh, there was the, the bells and all that went off in town, and people literally had to go underground. In that, people were going into the arena, so they were they were fine. But cars got pulled over to the side of the road. So as the uh, the game went on, the tornado was downgraded to heavy winds and rain. Well, the rain blocked all the intersections on the highway, and nobody could go anywhere. So people were leaving their vehicles on the highway, flooded, and just walking out. So they had to close all the main roads and highways, and we couldn't get through. So part of our kind of, if you wish, a pregame ritual as as the puck gets dropped at the beginning of the game, we leave our hotel and drive to the arena, which took 19 minutes without Mother Nature. <laughs> Mother Nature was there. It took almost three hours. <laughs> and we had the police escort and everything. And I, I think we were there eight minutes after the game had ended. Uh, but when we were on the ice and, you know, it all happened and Commissioner handed over to, Jonathan Taves, the captain, they did their stuff, and I was talking to Jonathan in the dressing room, and he said, I didn't even notice. He goes, it was great. He goes, I thought this was awesome. We we won it for the third time, and we got extra time on the ice before the cap presentation. He said, I thought it was wonderful. So it, it, was, it was kind of a blessing in disguise because it was at home, and it was lucky that a home team won, I guess. But Yeah, that would have been
1: asked, painful if it was the other way around.
4: You're right, and thankfully, <laughs> it, thankfully it all worked out. Uh, And Mother Nature is a hockey fan, but the whole prelude to the whole story is the first time the Hawks won the Cup at home in the 30s, it wasn't even there because at the time they were playing the the Leafs, I think, and the president of the uh, NHL at the time didn't think Chicago would win, so they left it in Toronto. (laughs) So, you know, the world works in mysterious ways, I guess, and... Hey, now you look at Chicago this year, and they're not even going to make the playoffs. So a lot changes, and a lot happens in the world of the National Hockey League and hockey, but Stanley Cup always remains the same.
1: Well, why the Stanley Cup, why we're talking about it in some to some degree and what's going on with it is that the Stanley Cup can only... Everyone knows that all the names of the people who win get engraved onto the Stanley Cup. It's part of the great tradition. You go and look at the cup, you can find all the great names. But the cup doesn't get any bigger, and there's only so much room. So every... Is it 13 years? Every 13 years, it has to be... One of the bands has to be taken off?
4: Correct, yes. Yeah, so 13 years, and this spring, is uh, it's time again.
1: And so... What happens, though, is that we are back now. I don't know what the years are that are coming off, but we're into the, I guess you could describe sort of the glory days of the original Six Era for the people who are alive now. Many of the people alive now were into the beginning of their childhoods for a lot of them, even the older people now, of the names that they would really recognize, and this is the year some of them are coming off.
4: Correct. It's 53 to 66, actually, so you're we're losing the... Uh, the glory years of the Detroit Red Wings the Montreal Canadiens, uh, a couple of the Leafs teams Chicago Blackhawks but on those are Stan Makita, Bobby Hull Gordie Howe Ted Lindsay Maurice Richard Jacques Plant, Glenn Hall like some big big hockey names that did a lot for the game in the original six year and the glory years and I think it's exactly right what you said Scott for the people our age and around there those were kind of like our childhood idols 13 years from now, when a ring has to come off again, it will be the Bobby Clarks and the Brian Trotches and that. So that'll be And the
1: Bobby Orrs and the Frank Mavolichs exactly and Jean and Beliveau. Yeah, yeah, there's so many. I mean, I was a Bernie Perrant. Bernie Perrant was my guy. When I was a kid, he was my favorite. He'll be off next time. I mean, it's, Yes, but
4: it's still 13 years away yet. So. That's
1: true, yep. But it does, I mean, it really kind of is. I was talking to someone about this today. It really kind of is one of those moments, I guess, that, what it's because you're on there for 65 years if you win you last your name is on there for 65 years so when you're coming off if these are your childhood heroes man that's indicative of something that maybe you're getting up there it really is it starts to mean that you're you've got some years under your belt
4: you're right and hey we all age hopefully we all (laughs) age, age gracefully and the stanley cup certainly does i mean it's its 125th anniversary this year if we all look as good as it does when we're at 125, I think we're doing okay.
1: Is it the top ring or the bottom that comes off?
4: It is the uh, top ring of the big barrel, and then the other four slide up, and we add the new ring to the bottom. So always the newest team that has won is at the bottom, and it has to work its way up.
1: This may be a stupid question, but has there ever been any thought? Because the Stanley Cup has not always been the shape it is now. Has there ever been any thought to expanding it any further?
4: Well, you know what? Back in 1992, and I, I remember being on the conference call with the, the National Hockey League, uh, myself at the Hall of Fame, and the trustees, and that. And there was all talks because it was the hundredth anniversary. Then the Cup had ran out of room for some reason way back when. They made it so it would be a hundred years old when the team ran or the Cup ran out of room. So there was talk of do they make a duplicate one and start over again and retire the the original one, and it starts from the top and works down, and they didn't like that idea. Then they thought about adding more rings to the bottom and making it bigger. It's three feet high now. And someone said that Brian Trotche, who at that time had won the cup six times, had once said it's the perfect height to hold over your head. And it kind of rung, and we thought, okay, so it's three feet high. How does it stay three feet high? And that's how this whole evolution kind of happened. We remove one ring and the others slide up, and
0: when you win, you're
4: pretty well on for your lifetime, as we were talking about earlier. So that's how that's all happened. We've removed two rings so far. The third one's coming up uh, in May, sometime late May, early June.
1: And what happens to the rings once they come off?
4: So they uh, they get retired into the Hockey Hall of Fame. So any guest that comes through the hall, you walk into Lord Stanley's Vault, it's got the whole history of who Lord Stanley is as our Governor General and what the Stanley Cup means and everything like that, and all the rings that have been removed are all on display there, so they're still they're still preserved, they're still honored, they're still Stanley Cup champions.
1: So it's not melted down or something no, like that?
4: No, 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 it's not on my mantle.
1: <laughs> uh, now, before I let you go, we only have a couple of minutes, I do have to ask you, because when you do, every time you are seen with the Stanley Cup, you have the white gloves on. What's the story behind the white gloves? Where did that come from?
4: Well, uh, like any museum, and, and I'm a curator at the, the Hockey Hall of Fame Museum, but the Golf Hall of Fame in Oakville, uh, see at the Canadian Football Hall of Fame in Hamilton there, the UROM in Toronto, all curators at all museums will white gloves to handle the artifacts. We, we're in a unique position at the Hockey Hall of Fame that a lot of our trophies are still being used. We house the Memorial Cup, we house the Allen Cup uh, for Senior Hockey, the Memorial Cup for the Canadian hockey league and they are also current trophies but they're also artifacts so we handle them with white gloves and we just kind of brought the white gloves from behind the scenes into the forefront and it i guess it was kind of by accident but it became like an instant tradition like right away all of a sudden people expect that we're supposed to um, people come up to me at the grocery store and say where's my white gloves <laughs> they, they think that they're glued to me or I, i'm not sure But we always look after it, and it's out of respect, and it's out of care for the artifacts. But, hey, I I think when you're wearing your white gloves and you've got the greatest trophy in the world, it's it's pretty good care and a a respect thing.
1: Do you own, like, is it one pair that you wear? Uh, (laughs) Do you have one pair, or do you have 100 pairs?
4: You know what, I I wish my wife was here now (laughs) somewhere, because (laughs) I've kept every pair of white gloves I've ever worn. Really? They're in my house, somewhere here, yeah, I've got them all over the place. But like how that.
1: many is that? Is it like three pairs over yeah, the years, no, or it's
4: about? Uh, I'm going to say forty to fifty pair a year, probably. A year. Yeah, so I've got a lot at home here, and they're all marked of the years that I wore them and everything like that. And yeah, there's a lot. I I've- well, as an ar- my underwear to <laughs>
1: <laughs> But as an archivist, I mean someone who's trying to build the museum and you're the guy who's going out often and asking players for memorabilia or things, do you ever get people coming up to you and saying, "Hey, Phil, can I get a pair of those gloves from you?" Because that's yeah. I mean, that's a cool piece of that a lot of people would see that as an artifact.
4: Yeah, you know what? I I guess they would. Uh No, people haven't. Uh, I've got every pair, so I I mean, I can honestly say to them, I've I've got every pair. I'll gladly give them another pair, but every pair that I've worn, I've kept so far, and I'm sure they'll end up at the hall or in recycling or something.
1: That's right. Yeah, make sure it's in the will so your wife knows when the day comes, hopefully many years from now.
4: Yep. The good thing is we can wash
1: them and reuse them. So Yeah, yeah. Well you know, your recycle guy one of these days is gonna pull open the garbage pail. wow, there's seven hundred pairs of white gloves here. I wonder if I could do anything with these. <laughs>
4: Uh, just well, make sure, make sure. Fit them, my hands are <laughs>
1: yeah, when you go on a trip somewhere, just make sure you tell you wife. Don't throw out the bag.
4: Correct. Yes, you got
1: it. Phil Pritchard, Burlington guy, hockey Hall of Fame, and uh, arch- I was going to say anarchist. That's a different thing altogether. Archivist. <laughs> wrong uh, conversation. Yeah, wrong conversation entirely. Uh, and the man who carries the Stanley Cup, you will see him in a couple months, and then yeah. now, do you still? I should let before I let you go. Do you still do the cup tour i know there's a few guys who do yeah, what you do yeah, but you yeah, still do that at it
4: all a, we're already kind of settled start working on places and looking at uh, rosters and everything but yep, still on still on the road
1: who which now I, i'm not going to ask you if you're cheering for a team because i know you'd never tell me anyway but is there a roster in the nhl that's going to the playoffs right now that would be the super travel team that you would have to do way more traveling for them than anyone else
4: well, you know what? It's funny you say that because last year with Pittsburgh, we were in seven countries. And I would never have dreamed that looking at Penguins roster at first until you see where they were all born. So traveling to seven countries in the summer with hockey players, I mean, that that's huge. And, and it just shows you how big this Canadian mm. sport has become worldwide. So, I, I mean, obviously the Penguins have that many players, but Washington have an Australian on the team, uh, Los Angeles has Slovenian guys.
1: So Have you been to Australia with the Cup before? Not never. Well, there's that could be a new one. Yeah, you're right. That could be a new one. You've been to Russia, so and that was yeah, new Russia, once upon Bulgaria, a time. yeah,
4: Slovenia, yeah. Czech, Slovak. I, need, I think we need some guys from Fiji
1: and <laughs> we need some Tahitian players to start exactly. joining the yeah. NHL.
4: Scott, they're going to be there one day.
1: I'm so. sure they will. Phil Pritchard, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this, sir.
4: No problem, Scott. It's always good to talk to you. Keep
1: in touch. That is uh, Phil Pritchard, the archivist. You know, that's an easy mistake to make. Anarchist, archivist, means something entirely different, but archivist of the Hockey Hall of Fame. You know, one of these days I'm going to have him back on because about something else because there is, and I've been in it, I was very fortunate to have a tour of it one time, the warehouse where the stuff is kept. The Hockey Hall of Fame has I don't know how many tens of thousands of pieces of memorabilia on display, but there is a warehouse where five times, 10 times, 20 times the amount of stuff that isn't, there's no room to display it all the time is kept. And I got to tell you, it is if you are a hockey fan or if you're a fan of history, or if you can appreciate sports history, it is amazing to see some of the things up close and, on the one hand, you know, okay, it's just a stick, it's a hockey stick. Who cares? But then you know the story behind some of these sticks you go, wow, I can pick up now you can't because it's not a it's not open to the public. And I don't know that I was actually supposed to pick anything up <laughs> quite honestly, but but you can pick up, you can see these things. It is an amazing, amazing place and I'd love to know and I'll ask him next time he's on. I'd love to know if when you do this day after day after day, if you can still have any kind of emotional connection, to the fact that hey, there's Maurice Richard's stick that I'm just holding, or something like that. It's 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 a very cool job. There's not too many people who get to do this job. He's got when well, he's got one of the good jobs. I'll tell you that. If I could be an anarchist or an archivist, I'd be interested in having Phil's job one of these days. But it'll never happen.
0: The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from six to eight on 900 CHML.